Are we awake yet? Getting there? I love that song. Ah, it's just one of my favorites. So um, we're in this series. We're, we're uh, partway through. I, I, I don't know at what point we're at. We started in October. Uh, it's March now, right? I think it's March. So we'll be done when we get done, but it's, it's about discipleship. And um, as we're walking through all the different elements of discipleship, I, I thought, you know, one of the things that we need to do is dig into and discover, you know, the teachings of Jesus. What does Jesus actually say about what it means to be a disciple? What are his most important uh, teachings? And so we're walking through within this series the, the uh, five major discourses of Jesus in Matthew, okay, as, as Matthew records these discourses. Now, what does that mean? A discourse is a, a teaching. Uh, so it, it begins with uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And so Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is this major block of, of Jesus just sharing with us his ethic, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to live the Christian life. Um, but we're in the fourth discourse now in chapters 18, 19, 20. Okay, Matthew chapters 18, 19, 20, and it's a little different than the other. So if you have like a red letter Bible, you saw in uh, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, like every letter was read because it was just as big preached. But in Matthew 18, 19, 20, uh, it's, it's different. He is going to answer questions um, throughout these three chapters, and they come to him in, in all these different uh, angles and ways about things that they're trying to figure out. And, and it starts off with, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And, and the question about all the different things that we're going to see in these chapters uh, has to do with that idea of greatness. Um, who's the greatest? What does it mean to be great? What is, what's our position in the kingdom? What, what's our identity as it relates to our value? And so this is essentially what Jesus is beginning to answer here in these chapters. The issue of greatness goes back to the issue of identity, which goes back to the issue of value. What is my worth? What's my value? How do you figure what your value is? And everything that we see in these chapters um, refers to how if you try to figure out your not your identity as much as your value through the things that you do, so your position, things that you accomplish, the money that you have, the relationships that you have, the, all the external things of life. I'm trying to figure out, am I valuable? Am I worthy? Am I worth anything? What's, what is my inherent value based on all those things? What you're going to do is you're going to get very confused because any of those things and all of those things are a moving target that shifts and changes and adjusts and depends on circumstances and the time of day and the time of year and all the rest of it. And if you're trying to figure out your value based on anything that's external like that, you're going to wind up probably um, very confused and very insecure. And what Jesus is going to point us to is something that is inherently, spiritually, absolutely true which is that your value is essentially based on your relationship with God, but God has determined what everybody's value is. And what has he said about your value? 
What, is, what, is, what does God declare about how worth, how much worth you have, how valuable you are? He says that I made you in my image, that uh, you are created to be in some way the fingerprint of God, that you are, you are not only just made in his image and have inherent um, value that is almost inestimable, but also that he has died for you, that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross in order to purchase your life, to redeem it. And so he says, you're so valuable that you are worth the most precious thing in existence. And so your, your value, your worth, is absolutely recorded in Scripture as being that which is most precious to God. So you don't have to wonder, you don't have to try to figure out or seek out some way to, to be valuable. You are valuable. And then when you put your life in God's hands and what you're saying is, God, I agree with you about who I am, so I'm not going to look for my value in all these other worldly external things. Now, here's what we're going to discover is that even though these are absolute spiritual truths, we still struggle. Your identity, your value. Who, who, what's going to happen? What's, what's God going to do in my life? What's God going to, to uh, promise me? How is this all going to work out? Uh, we're, we're still trying to figure out all those things. The disciples were trying to figure out those things. And uh, what Jesus illusion about what you are actually worth. So let's look at what Jesus says. This is Matthew 18, and we're going to read just the first uh, six verses here. Let's stand as we read God's Word this morning. Matthew 18, 1 through 6, says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children... You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Then he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little children, these little ones, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word today as you begin to um, reveal uh, who we are, Lord, and, and settle that question absolutely and uh, call us into a relationship with yourself, Lord, uh, confirming over and over to our hearts um, not only our, our worth but our destiny, uh, our purpose in life, what your will is for us. Uh, at every point, every stage of life, uh, what it is that we're here to be and do. Uh, Lord, we want to live and function out of that identity and not just out of um, the sense of of trying to earn anything. And in fact, Lord, we know that we can't earn anything, that you've been so gracious, Lord, to tell us that you have saved us through grace, by faith, not by any work. And so, Lord, we thank you that um, you have settled the issue. Lord, we're not trying to earn favor. We're not trying to earn our place. We're not trying to earn our position. We've received it by faith. But 
Now we pray that we would live a life worthy of that position, of that identity, of that new nature. Lord, help us to um, display the, the new life in Christ that, that we actually experience. Help us to live it out in a way that glorifies you, that uh, enlightens the world to its own need for you, to its own uh, place and position and desire. Lord, I pray that the world would see, um, Lord, just how much you love each and every person. You so loved the world that you gave your only son. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you are willing not only to do that, but to declare it, um, to make it known. And so we pray that we would also uh, not only uh, receive it, but that we would make it known for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, as I said, Jesus is responding to a lot of different questions. And if you look through this passage, 18, 19, 20, you, what you might think is, I don't know if all these things are similar, or do they all hold together? Are they part of the same teaching? And let me just show you, um, we already read the first part where it opens up. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus responds, you must become like a little child. In, in chapter 19, in verse uh, 13, he, he uh, reinforces that teaching again. We have another situation. It says, then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. Um, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on some of them and went away. So uh, here we have a reinforcement of the teaching, which is that uh, it requires humility, uh, that uh, the greatness that we think of as, as human position, human power, human influence, human possession, all those things, that's not what it's about. It's about a dependence on God. And so he reinforces that teaching and it goes right back to that same uh, elemental thing, which is you must become like children. Um, so he's, we see that there's a, a clear connection with that. But then we also see that the disciples still don't get it right? They don't get it in chapter 18, verse 1. They're like, who's the greatest? That's not the question they really should be struggling with or worrying about. They don't get it here in 19, verse 13, where they're like refusing to let the kids come to Jesus. They don't, they don't understand this whole reality that um, it's the least of these that they're really there to minister to, and children are very important in, in the context of Jesus's ministry. And then at the end of chapter 20, you see another occasion where James and John, two of Jesus' inner circle of disciples. So Jesus has uh, one person that he is, is primarily um, connecting with in his group of disciples, which is Peter. Peter is his like number one go-to uh, sidekick. Then James and John are with Jesus and Peter a lot of the time when they do some very specific ministry. They are part of Jesus' what we call the inner circle. So in their mind, they're thinking, okay, we're part of the inner circle. Maybe Peter is going to win out over us two, their two brothers, and he's going to become more prominent than we are. And so they actually try to go around and get Jesus to give them a greater position in the kingdom. And they bring their mommy along, which I don't quite understand. <laughs> they're young, okay. But so they bring their mom. She comes before Jesus they're with her, and it says in verse uh, four, or, uh, 21, say that these two sons of mine are to sit at, one at your right hand and your left in your kingdom. Like, 
promise me, Jesus, would you let my two sons sit at your right and your left? Basically, we want them to have the most prominent place in the kingdom. And so Jesus is going to uh, basically rebuke them. But uh, what you see here is another instance where the whole thing connects together with this issue of desire to be great, the teaching of humility, and the reality of ultimate identity and value. Um, and, they, and at the end of this whole thing, chapter 20, what happens? They don't understand. They don't get it. They're still missing the point. After three chapters of all the dis, you know, questions and answers and discussions and things that Jesus gets into, they still don't grasp what he's really talking about. So it's okay. Sometimes as disciples, we don't get grasp everything that we're trying to learn and pick up and understand and apply to our lives. There's a process going on here, but we'd like to do a little bit better. So the issue here has a lot to do with humility. Let me give you um, some, some uh, definitions of humility. So in the Christian faith, what you understand is that the number one ethic of the Christian faith is love. Okay, that is the prominent central ethic to Christianity. But a close second is humility. Humility is one of those qualities that is so essential to what it means to be a Christian that you cannot, um, you cannot take apart Jesus from humility. It is, it is essentially um, who he is. He is uh, Jesus, humble, meek, mild, all those things that we kind of like, I don't even know what that means. Meek and mild has to do with this quality of Jesus unwilling to be personally offended. Unwilling to be personally offended. And humility has to do with the quality of exalting and depending on his Father above all things. But here's, here's a definition I, I found. I thought, it's, it's interesting. It's pretty good. Um, and it says this. It says, the personal quality of being free from pride and arrogance and having an accurate estimate of one's worth. Okay? Um, the personal quality of being free from pride and arrogance and having an accurate estimate of one's worth. Pretty good. Sounds very Christian, although the problem is I have a problem with this definition, which is it's, it sounds like you are born with this quality. Like it's just something, like it's part of your temperament. It's just part of, of your design. Like you're, some people just fortunately are born with humility. Like some people were born with the genes to be tall, right? And, uh, and others of us were born with the genes to be handsome. And um, so... That's a joke, and definitely a joke. But uh, the idea, though, it, it just is kind of, it's kind of odd, because we know that that the human heart is sinful at its core, right? It, it's born with sin, and and the basic issue of sin is pride. And so people aren't generally, probably, born with just this inherent, you know, humble quality. So then you take it on the other side and you say, well, it's something that is developed. Like you, you learn it, you, you grow into it, you mature into this, this humility, right? 
But how do you do that? If that's the case, which the Bible says that we need to develop humility, we need to pursue humility, how do you do that? Here's the, 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 the problem, is that almost inevitably people will tend to um, do the wrong thing when it comes to trying to develop humility, which is to become self-deprecating, right? So we, we actually overcompensate on the side of trying to say, I'm worthless, I'm horrible, I'm just a sinner, I'm a worm, I'm, I'm, I'm stupid, I can't do anything right, and it's just by the grace of God that you know, I, I've even uh, survived into adulthood, you know, basically, and, and uh, I'm, I'm, all I am is what I am because of what Jesus did for me, and it has nothing to do with anything about me, which it sounds kind of right, but it's not quite right. And the reason why it's not quite right is because what it is is false humility. You ever heard that term before? False humility, which means that you're trying to overcompensate for the need to be humble by saying that you're actually worse than what you really are. And that's not true. And number one, it's not true because um, you have a significant inherent value in God's eyes, and you have gifts, and you have talents, and you have certain things that are qualities about you that are good things, strengths, and we don't have to downplay those or, 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 or uh, say they don't exist. I mean, those things are there in you, but the other thing is that you don't necessarily believe what you're saying when you say that you're worthless, and you're stupid, and you're, you know, not, you're, you're, saying that, but it's false because you, you cannot say that, you cannot believe that if you believe the Bible. Because the Bible says something very different about who you are and, and your value and how God made you and what he thinks about you. So if you're a biblical Christian person who believes what God has revealed in his word about humanity and about you specifically, then you can't say those things about yourself and be honest. There's, there's a problem there. So we have to be careful not to, to dive into this false humility. It's okay to accurately think about your gifts and abilities and worth and all that, but not to downplay it, okay? So here's what the Old Testament says. I thought this was very interesting. The Old Testament has a very specific way to define humility, and here's what it is. Humility is this, to be afflicted. Have you, have you ever heard that before? to be afflicted. And here's what the Old Testament basically teaches about humility, is that um, if God loves you, then he will do what to you? He will discipline you. God loves those, or God disciplines those he loves. Have you heard that before? God disciplines those he loves. God wants to grow your humility so he'll allow you to go through difficulties in life. And, and in fact, um, the more difficulties that you go through in life, the more what you end up doing is depending, if you apply faith, you, you depend on God more and more and more. You become more and more um, obedient, you become more and more uh, yielded and, um, and dependent on God and your relationship with Him. And so what that is, is you're exalting God and you are uh, beginning to see him as the utmost of your attention, your life, your, your, your strength, your peace, your joy. He is uh, everything that is getting all of your heart, right? 
And so what develops out of that, it's, it's not that you're necessarily seeking humility in, in itself. What you're seeking is a relationship with God, and, and humility is the automatic, natural outcome of a relationship with God. It becomes the, the second nature to the first nature, and the first nature is that you are now a new creature in Christ. So that definition actually makes much more sense. And so what happens here as we begin here in chapter 18 is it says, uh, who's the greatest? And he says, here, um, I'm going to take this child, and I want you to become like children, and then you'll understand what it means to be great in the kingdom. And what he means is not what, how a lot of people would take it. Um, he does not mean be childish. Okay? A childish means immature, um, ignorant, um, careless, okay? That's childish. He doesn't want you to be a childish Christian. He wants you to be a childlike Christian. And a childlike Christian means that uh, a child is defined by its relationship with his or her parents. They're defined by that. that. That is the nature of a child, is that they live in a home with parents who are taking care of them, who are giving them food, who are giving them shelter, who are teaching them, who are training them, who are directing them in life. Okay, There's a 100% dependence on parents by children. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be great in the kingdom, then you need to be 100% dependent on your Father in heaven. That this is the nature of what it means to be a disciple. You have to be completely related to your Father in heaven. You actually need to see yourself as, I need God for the air that I breathe, for for the the energy that I expel in work. I need God to provide for me everything that I have in my life, even my thoughts. I'm going to direct them all to the Lord. And so what does the the Bible say? It says that we take captive every thought. We make it obedient to Christ. Everything that, that's going on in my life, I need to make sure that I'm washing it through my relationship with the Lord because He is the one who is ultimately providing life to me and my purpose and my future and everything else. So we have to have a childlike faith. And then he says something very interesting. He gives us what some people call the millstone prophecy. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. It's not exactly a prophecy, but it's this, this basic issue, which is that as a disciple... Um, here's, here's what's going to happen. By nature, okay, if you are a, a saved person, you, you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit has come into your heart, into your life, has changed you, made you a new creature in Christ, then automatically uh, what is going to happen, what has to happen, is that your life and your words, your belief, how you talk, who you talk to, what you do, all the rest of it, all of it is what we call the ethic of influence. It is, it is leading people or directing people to a relationship with God because you live in a relationship with God by your nature. Okay, you're, you're directing kids and people and adults and friends and coworkers and family and all the rest of it. You're directing people just by how you live your life to a relationship with God. When he says that if you teach one of these little ones who believe in me to sin it'd be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the depths of the sea. What he's saying is that a non-believing person who actually intentionally seeks to take a child, especially a child, but almost anyone, and try to um, convince them to live independently from God, number one, 
as a, you, where you are in, in your spiritual nature is you're lost and condemned and you're, you're going to go to hell. Not because you're trying to get somebody to not believe in God, because that's, that's your nature. You haven't been restored or redeemed into a new creature of Christ who's destined to go to heaven. Your nature is lost. But it's equal or it's even more infinitely worse because you're actually trying to take somebody who's seeking the Lord and direct them away from the Lord. So not only are you trying to condemn somebody else, you're already condemned. It, and he says, he says this about Judas and, and some other places. It'd be better if you had never been born than to do that. Because you're unwilling to allow God to change your nature and make you a new creature. So, it isn't necessarily about, so to speak, what you do. It's really about who you are. So he goes on here, and we're skipping through. We're going to just deal with like five things here, okay? So number two deals with, in verse 15, the brother who sins against you. What are you supposed to do with a person um, who sins against you or who has sinned in such a way that you are aware of their, their sin? Okay? Now, here's how I am seeing this. Um, what is going on is, we'll say, um, Kurt, I like to pick on Kurt because he sits up front. Uh, Kurt has, has, I don't want to use Kurt as an example. Okay, scratch that, ignore that. A person in the church, <laughs> any person who um, has declared that they are a believer, okay, they say, I believe in Christ, they have, they have been baptized, they're, they're a member of the church, they're whatever, okay, they're, they, have, they have communicated clearly that they are declaring, okay, that they are a Christian. That person you know, you find out is having an affair. That's why I didn't want to use Kurt. That's, that's, that's a terrible thing to do. Okay, that person is having an affair. You go to that person, you say, your identity is this. You say that you're a Christian. You say that you're a believer. You say that you've, you've given your life to Christ, but you're living like this, and living like this is in contradiction to the nature that you say that you now have. That's, those two things can't exist together. You can't be a, a Christian with the Holy Spirit who is believing God's word and relating to God and also doing this thing, which is absolutely in defiance and rebellion to what God's will is for your life. And so if that person listens to you and they say, you know what, you're absolutely right. I was blinded by my weakness or whatever, my ignorance. And so um, I'm convicted. You're, and, and if you do that and you win them over, then you've won your brother. What you've found out is that that person really was a believer and they were living in a way that was out of sorts with their identity. Now, if they will not listen to you and then you go and you take somebody with you as a second witness to say, hey, um, you're doing this. This is outside of your nature as a Christian. And they say, I don't care what you say. I'm going to do what I want. And then you take it to the, the deacon board and they go and they talk to this person. And they say, hey, you're doing this. And this is out of, of a, you know, a connection with your identity as a Christian. They say, I don't care what you say. I'm going to do what I want. You take him to the church, etc. He goes through this whole process. What, what is happening here is you're identifying that they are living outside of what they've said is their new nature. And if they're not willing to admit or, or confess or repent, then what they're declaring is they have not received a new nature. 
they are living consistently with their old nature. They're not saved. I didn't say they're not saved. Jesus says, you have to treat them like a tax collector or a sinner. Because what they're saying by their lifestyle is that they haven't been saved. The conviction of the Holy Spirit's not there. The willingness to receive God's words is not there. The willingness to uh, uh, change through accountability is not there. I, I am saying that that person is living in um, distance or, or out of uh, character or, or they are living separate from uh, a relationship with God. So how do you treat that person? Take them outside and throw rocks at them, right? How do you treat a non-believer? You love them, pray for them, you continue to witness to them, you continue to hope and pray that they will receive Christ because ultimately what all you've done is discover that this person who says they're a Christian is not. And what you're trying to do is help them to become different. It's not even, I have to say this, it's not even about trying to change their behavior. What if they change their behavior and never receive Christ? They, they can't just change their behavior. What you're seeking is a new heart and a new nature. Amen. And it's simply the, the recognition that this, this lifestyle is wrong and it's outside of what it means to be a Christian. So he begins to help people to understand the identity that we need to have in Christ through that. So my heart is not about me being right or laying down the law or trying to exercise some kind of discipline. The heart of the matter is to care for the person who is sinning because they're in danger. Now, the next thing that he goes into is the parable of the unforgiving servant. Peter has come to him. Uh, this is verse uh, 21. He says, Peter came to him and said, Lord, how, many, how often uh, will my brother sin against me and I will forgive him? Up to seven times? And that sounds pretty good. I mean, if somebody sinned against you seven times and you forgave them seven times, you probably feel pretty good about yourself, I would imagine. Now, what's going on, though, is that in that day, the, the rabbinical teaching, that person, and they sin against you a fourth time, you cut them off. Like, they, they're done. You can just be done with them. And Peter says, what about seven times? That seems like a good biblical solid number. How about seven times? And Jesus says, not seven times, but 70 times, seven times. So 490 times they sin against you and ask for forgiveness. You forgive them the 491st time, then you don't have to forgive them anymore. You can cut them off. Right? Something else is going on here, which is that Jesus is identifying that you and I as a Christian our nature, our, the core of our identity is to be a redeemed person. I, as a Christian, am a forgiven and redeemed person. That's, that's who I am. I did not know God. I was an enemy of God. It's by the grace of God that I received the gospel, that God forgave my sin, and he put me in a new position. He gave me a new nature. He put his spirit in me, and he has forgiven my sin, and he has changed my sinful nature right? He's given me a new nature. He's actually made me an heir with Christ. But at the core of that is that I am a forgiven person. And what Jesus is saying is that a person who understands that this is your identity, that you are a forgiven person first and foremost in your relationship with God, has to, by nature, offer forgiveness to other people when they sin against you. It's automatic. It's automatic not because it's a, it's a law laid down for me to follow. It's automatic because of who I am. 
If I understand who I am, that I'm a forgiven person, I have to offer forgiveness to people around me who have sinned against me. Obviously, we're all going to sin against each other in one way, form, or another at some point. And the nature of the church and the ethic of of Christianity is that when you understand forgiveness, then you will automatically offer forgiveness. And here's what happens. The world will see when Christians forgive each other and those outside of, of Christianity, the world will see a picture of what it means to have a relationship with God. Because ultimately, when Christians are unforgiving, then what happens is we're living in contradiction to our nature, and people are seeing um, that God is vengeful, and He is a God of wrath, and He is a God who will not forgive, and He is a God who holds you to a standard that you can't meet, and therefore, why, why believe or trust a God that, that won't forgive me? When Christians fail in this respect, then what we're saying is we're declaring that people... Um, are believing in a false God. And for them to believe in the correct God means that we have to reflect the God who changed us, saved us, forgave us, and then we offer forgiveness freely. How do you do that? Offering forgiveness is is a difficult thing. Would you agree? It's not easy. Um, But ultimately, what it is is God says, I've cast your sin as far away from you as the east is from the west. God does not identify you with your sin. He identifies you with his son. So when you forgive somebody, then it means that you do not hold that sin in your back pocket waiting to bring it out and throw it in their face as soon as they make another mistake. People say this, I forgive, but I don't forget. Well, then you haven't forgiven. Pray that God would help you to forget the value that he has placed on them as a believer. It's a big difference. So he says, this is part of that greatness. Your value has to do with your identity as a forgiven person. And then he goes into chapter 19, and this is, it seems to take a different turn here. He says, uh, they came to him asking, should we or can we divorce for any and every reason? Is it okay to just... So <clears throat> according to the Jewish uh, tradition, um, if, uh, let's say, Molly uh, burned my dinner then I could divorce her because I would be unhappy and unsatisfied with how she cooked my dinner. Um, It was a common problem in the first century, and it's a common problem in the 21st century. Basically, the issue was, if this person doesn't make me happy, can I ditch them and find somebody else who will make me happy? That's the whole issue. And Jesus says, here, let let me bring you back to reality. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall not leave. Uh, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. And what Jesus is saying is that the, uh, the reality of your relationship with God, that you are joined together by God's faithfulness, and that you have become one, okay? His Holy Spirit, little thing that you, your nature has changed and the, 
and something permanent has happened. It's not contingent on doing one thing right or wrong, and, and maybe I feel good about it today, and I feel bad about it tomorrow. It's permanent. It's a change. It is a new nature. It is something that God has established by his promise. He says that the one relationship in the world that illustrates that relationship with him is marriage. I made you two people, that you come together as one, and now you are you're no longer two but one. That your relationship with each other is not simply about making each other happy. It, you, you should enjoy marriage. I hope that you do enjoy your marriage and that you get strength and value from it. That, that's definitely part of God's plan and his design. But marriage is much more than that. It's much more than that. It is an illustration of God's relationship with you. And as Christians, what we do in marriage is that we understand that my, my role as a husband is to build up, support, um, validate, and uh, strengthen my wife. She is my better half, and I am her better half. And so what we do is we offer the strength that we have for each other in order for us to have one, one relationship that is permanent based on faithfulness, not based on, dare I say, happiness. It's an identity issue. It's not a rule issue. And when you get that, then you begin to be able to apply yourself to your marriage in a new and different way. Most people... Okay, now I'm preaching. Most people are unhappy in their marriages because they think that marriage is about making them happy. And they keep dreaming about that one person who's going to make them happy. And they never get what God designed marriage to really be about, which is to illustrate and reflect his relationship with you. And if you could engage in your marriage in that way, then you would actually be happy. Last thing here, chapter 19, um, the rich young man, eternal life, and Jesus says, have you kept the commands? He says, yes, I have, and he says, okay, give up all your, your wealth, and then you'll have uh, eternal life. You've come follow me, then you'll have eternal life. And uh, what's happening here is that the rich young ruler is much like most people in our world today, which is that people think that their value has to do with their net worth. That, that it's about how much stuff I have, if I'm successful. It may not be money. It might be uh, a car that, that's a status symbol. It might be a house. It might be uh, a degree or, or some kind of certification or some kind of promotion or, or whatever it is. It's like uh, those things, it's the things of the world, the things that I can qualify or quantify, that, that those things make me valuable because I have succeeded in the world's eyes. That's what makes me valuable. And Jesus says to the rich young ruler, and we hate this because we, we're constantly um, concerned that Jesus is going to tell us to give up our money, but he says, give up all your wealth because your identity or your worth is not found in the identity of your money, it's found in the identity of your relationship to God. And what's blocking your relationship with God is you thinking that you're valuable because you are wealthy. So give up that wealth and then you can actually find your identity in Christ. 
the wealth really didn't have a whole lot to do with it. It was just the, the obstacle for him to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And people don't like to hear that because they're like, well, I can have my wealth and have a relationship with Jesus, and it's all good. He only meant that for some people they need to give up their wealth. And not me, though. It's always never me, right? And <laughs> I'm just telling you, you might have to sacrifice something in order to get that obstacle out of your way so you can actually have a relationship with Jesus. I'm not saying that every single person has to give away every possession that they own, but I am saying that more people need to give up something because it is hindering them from knowing Christ. And most people are not willing to give up anything. They just want to add Jesus to their life and think that everything's going to be good. And they have no idea that all they're doing is they're still trying to gain their sense of worth out of that thing in this world that's never going to actually give them a sense of, of, sense of worth. So here's what's funny, though. We focus on that story and the rich young man, Jesus was kind of sad. This guy went away sad, and Jesus is heartbroken that he won't, he won't give up his worldly wealth for a relationship with Jesus. But here's what happens. The disciples, they come to him, and they say, what about us? We gave up everything to follow you. They're thinking like, oh yeah, pat on the back, we're good. We gave up all kinds of stuff, so we're going to be richly rewarded in the kingdom. And Jesus rebukes them. I'm going to say subtly, maybe too subtly, because they don't seem to get it. He, now he gives them the parable of the vineyard workers. You remember this? So this guy, he owns a field. He goes out and he goes to Home Depot and he gets all these people who want to work for the day. Okay, Hires them out. They begin working at, at 6 a.m. And so he goes back to Home Depot later in the day. He gets some more people. And they go out and they work for part of the day. And then he goes back later and he gets some more people. And they go work for part of the day. And then he goes back at like... The 11th hour, okay, they work 12-hour days. He goes at the 11th hour, grabs the last few people to go work for one hour and sends them out into the field. They work for one hour, and then he begins to pay them. Okay, at the end of the day, they paid every day. That was their process. They had to pay them every day for your day's wage, for your day's work. And so they get a denarius. That's a day's wage. Gives them a denarius with the guys who just worked an hour. So he gets back to the guys who worked 12 hours. They worked all day. And what does he give them? Remember? just a denarius. And they're, they're like, hey, uh, why did they get a denarius? We got a denarius. We worked 12 hours. They worked one hour. That doesn't make sense. This isn't fair. And the master says, Are, what's your problem? Basically, what's your deal? You said you'd work for a denarius. That's, are you jealous because I'm generous with those other guys? Who are the guys who work 12 hours? The disciples. He's talking to the disciples about their attitude. You don't get it, guys. Listen, here's the deal. You can't earn it. It's by grace. But guess what you get? You are a co-heir with Christ. You get everything. You get everything. I get everything. The disciples get everything. You don't have to worry and struggle and stress about, oh, am I going to have a mansion in heaven or am I going to have a little shack by the gates? Or, Listen, I mean, we can joke about that, but that's stupid. You are a co-heir with Christ. You are inheriting the kingdom. You don't have to worry about what you're going to inherit as if it's not going to be enough. Okay? So then... <laughs> 
just to highlight the point that they didn't get it. What, how does this end? A mother's request. James and John come to Jesus with their mommy. And can we sit at your right and your left hand in the kingdom? I mean, he just told the story to slap them. And then they come right back and they're like, oh, yeah, we don't get that. We want to have these prominent positions. And here's uh, how he ends it. It says, whoever would be uh, great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Um, then he says this, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's what he's saying. And if you get this, you get the whole thing. Stop worrying about what you deserve, what you think you've earned, what you think you're going to get, how God's going to use you, how God's going to position you, how God's going to reward you in the end. And he says this, I came to serve. Keep your eyes on me. That's it. You got your attention on all these different things, all these worries, all these fears, all these concerns, all these desires. He says, just follow me. That's it. As a Christian, as a believer, your identity is settled. He's taken care of it. He's made you a new creature in Christ. That's what he's done for you. Your job, pay attention to him. Follow him, stay close to him, watch him, relate to him, pray to him, love him. That's it. Watch him. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your will. We thank you for your power, the Holy Spirit to change us, Lord, to do in us what we can't even imagine doing for ourselves, Lord. We can't do enough. We, sometimes we desire to try to do all kinds of things that will earn our place in heaven, and you've done it on the cross, Lord. You paid the price. There's no more to pay, Lord. You've done it. And you offer it freely. You just... Hold it out and say, it's yours if you'll trust. It's yours if you'll believe. If you'll be like a child and receive it and depend on, on God's goodness and his grace, then it's yours and it changes you and everything else. Yeah, we, we need to learn. We need to grow. We need to mature. We need to apply. But all the rest of it, Lord, is, is a matter of, of your work in us, working it out, closing the gap between our new nature and how we behave. And Lord, we pray that we would begin to just close that gap. Lord, it would be smaller and smaller that we would simply live out of the new nature that we have, that we know that we have, that we've been given and gifted. Just to live consistently with who you made us to be. And we'll give you all the praise, God, because out of that, you're going to not only bless our lives, you're going to bless others. They'll see Christ in us, and they'll want what we have. That's our prayer. Lord, we pray that you would do it, and we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing, and uh, let the Lord call us to respond as he will.